Thanks, Dan. It's good to see you and Lillian. Glad to have you with us. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. We're continuing again this morning in our series entitled Living Under the Influence. Living Under the Influence. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Let's pray. Father, as we open the scriptures together this morning, we pray for receptive hearts. Father, may your spirit work in us through your word to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might have a heart of wisdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians and verse 18, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit, to be filled by the Spirit. Last week in our series here from this verse, we learned that we fulfill the command to be filled by the Spirit by allowing the Word of Christ to richly dwell within us. Over in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, We saw there a parallel verse from the Apostle Paul in that letter that speaks directly to the issues that's facing us in this text before us. In other words, that to allow the word of Christ to to richly dwell within us means to prayerfully immerse ourselves in the Scriptures. To prayerfully immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and consistently allow the Spirit of God to shape the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act in response to various life situations. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit, to have the Scriptures that the Spirit has inspired transform us, transform us. And one way, one way that we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures is through the public preaching of the Word of God. That is why preaching occupies such a central role and always has among the people of God. It is the centerpiece of the corporate collective worship of the people of God. It has always been the preaching of the Word. And so this morning, as we begin together, by your alert alert and, and prayerful attention to the preaching this morning, you Give the Spirit of God the raw material, as it were, to transform you, to shape you, to conform you to the image of Christ, to to allow the Word of Christ to richly dwell within you. So the time before us this morning is an important time. It's important for every single one of us as the Scripture is brought to bear on our hearts and minds through the preaching of the Word right now. So we are looking at this this topic called Living Under the Influence, and I've entitled this morning's message, Can the Spirit's Filling Leak Out? Can the Spirit's Filling Leak Out? We're addressing the topic of living under the influence through a series of questions and answers. We've arranged a series of questions and answers, and and now to tip you off, there are 10 of them. There are 10 of them, okay? So you can kind of see, when is this thing going to end? There are 10 of them. We have already looked at the first seven, the first seven of those questions. And I'm not going to go over them. I'm not going to review them. I don't have time. If you go to our website, if you've missed any one of these sermons, you can go to our website. You can find them there, and I encourage you to go there and listen or watch And so you do get fully caught up to speed so that we can understand what it means to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But this morning, we are looking at question eight, okay? Question eight. One question this morning, that's all we've got time for. One question. Here it is. Can the filling leak out? Can the filling leak out? Now, a number of decades ago, I briefly attended Dallas Theological Seminary. And in my time there at DTS, I had a New Testament professor who talked about being filled with the Spirit. He took a content view, and if you don't know what I mean, you'll have to go back and listen to that sermon. He took a content view. 
But I remember him saying in our New Testament class uh, one time that, that as he talked about being filled with the Spirit, he, he, he said that on Sunday he, he was filled with the Spirit, but the problem came on Monday. That Monday through Friday, as it were, that the Spirit leaked out. The Spirit leaked out, that, that he was a leaky vessel was the way I believe he put it. And as I sat there and I, and I listened to that, I, it just didn't seem right to me. It didn't seem right to me then. Now, I didn't know enough theology to, to really uh, argue about all of that, not that I would have argued with him anyway, but, but, I, but I just didn't seem that that could be exactly what was happening. I understood what he was trying to say, that often on a Sunday, we, we feel like, you know, we draw close to the Lord and, and we have, we're filled with faith and everything, you know, looks like, wow, you know, it's going to be a good week. And then Monday morning collides, right? And we go, where did it all, you know, I want Sunday back. What, what happened to me? So I get it. I understand. It is, it is very much a common experience that the children of God have from time to time. Hopefully not every week. But you remember that a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the verb here, plerao, where translated here to be filled, it, we noted it was a present passive imperative. Present passive imperative. And in, and in other words, that this present passive imperative does not, okay, does not communicate repeated fillings. And that's what that New Testament professor was advocating. The idea, you know, I'm filled with the Spirit, it leaks out, I get filled again, he leaks out, I get filled again, he leaks out. That repeated fillings kind of approach. That is not what the present passive imperative is communicating, but what it's communicating to us is the idea of, of, of the continual responsibility to place ourselves in a position where the Spirit is fully influencing us in order to enable us to grow in the likeness of Christ. That's the present, the idea of the continual. The passive is we are, the, we are the recipient of the action of the verb, right? The filling action. And, it, and the filling, we said, is not a content issue, but it is to, it is to come under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit of God using the Scriptures to transform us, to change us into the image of Christ. And we have a responsibility to be about that regularly. So rather than something that repeatedly happens, it's more accurate to say, and I, and I have a quote here from a, from a fine New Testament scholar that I believe he teaches at Southern Seminary, and he said it would be more accurate to say that to be filled by the Spirit is, quote, a state of being, notice that a state of being, which should continually characterize the worship and relationships in the Christian community. Again, look at your text. 518 is given to us not as, as my, you know, me and, me and the Spirit, me and Christ, it's just us, but it's given in the context of the community of believers, right? You see that, verse 19, speaking to one another. It's talking about living together in community. So it's about being continually characterized, the state of being in which we are continually characterized by the influence of the Spirit of God over our worship and over our community together. So, beloved, the Spirit does not leak out, okay? So let's just answer that really quick. The Spirit does not leak out. That's not our problem. It's not our problem. But, contrast, we can obstruct His work we can obstruct his work of, of fully influencing us. We can obstruct that work, the work of fully influencing us, by giving in to what I call the three selves. The three selves. And this is where we're going to go this morning. I want to look with you this morning at the three selves that act to, to obstruct the, the continual work of the Spirit in my life and yours as he is seeking to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us like Jesus Christ. The three selves, and here they are. Okay? First, self-reliance. Self-reliance. Number two, self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. And the third one, self-will. So self-reliance, self-exaltation, and self-will. 
when we give in to these, we obstruct the work of the Spirit. We are not fulfilling the command to be filled by the Spirit when we are giving in to these three selves. This is our battle Monday morning. This is what happens to us Tuesday, Thursday, no, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when we can't, you know, get back to that place where we felt on Sunday morning so close to God. It's because we have given in to one or more of the three selves. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do this morning. We, I got a lot of notes and we're short on time, but I'll talk fast. So I want to look at these three selves and, we, and I can't exhaust them. And I'm not going to even try. Each one could easily be a one or more sermons by itself. But we're going we're gonna to narrow down, we're going to focus, and we're going to look at, first, self-reliance. Okay? So self-reliance. And for that, what I want to do is turn you, we're going to look at some different passages, turn you over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thess 5. Giving in to self-reliance. Giving in to self-reliance creates a barrier to the work of the Spirit in our lives. 1 Thess 5. 19 and 20. 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 and 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. To quench. To quench means to, to put out a fire. To quench is to, is to put out a fire. And Paul is using that figuratively here to speak of the Holy Spirit as, as represented by a fire that can be suppressed, that can be stifled, or can be extinguished, as it were. That he's using this figuratively to speak about the Spirit of God whose influence in us can be stifled, can be suppressed, can be extinguished. Okay? The quenching of the Spirit. Now, the context of 1 Thess 5 is, is much bigger than we can you know, possibly deal with this morning. So I'm, I'm homing in here on verse 20 in particular. Verse 20, right? Do not quench the Spirit, semicolon. Do not despise prophetic utterances. In other words, I want to I focus in the, this morning on what Paul is saying here about the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. The basic function... Okay, get this, write this down. The basic function of a prophet is to speak forth the counsel of God, the, the word of God. That, that's what the word prophet means, essentially. One who speaks forth for God. Write this down, look it up on your own. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 16, you see an illustration of what is a prophet and what does a prophet do. Now, as we look here at this statement, right, do not despise prophetic utterances. I don't want to get lost, so I do not want to get sucked in to the discussion that's swirling around in many circles of the church today uh, about the idea of, of ongoing uh, prophets, ongoing prophecy, fallible prophecy, okay? I'm not going to go there. I don't have the time to discuss it. I don't have the time to refute it because it is wrong, okay? It is wrong. There is not a legitimate ongoing prophecy. There are not ongoing prophets in the church today. So, leave that aside. Let's focus on what we can clearly understand and can clearly agree about, and it's simply this. The Scriptures are the Word of God. Is that amen? The Scriptures are the Word of God. And the Scriptures are inherently recorded by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, among other places. So the Scriptures are the Word of God. So when the prophets spoke for God, they, they spoke here. What I want to talk about is they spoke through the Scriptures. They spoke through the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures are the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, inherently inspired by the Spirit of God, they are authoritative. They are authoritative. They, are, they, are, they rule over the people of God. 
And they are necessary for the people of God. They are necessary for all life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So the, so the Word of God is where I'm focusing here, the Scriptures. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise, and I'll just change it this way. Do not despise the Scriptures. Do not despise the Scriptures. To suppress or to stifle the impact of the Scriptures in our lives both individually and corporately, is to quench the Spirit. It is to quench the Spirit. And, and we do this, we do this when by thinking or acting, we, we proceed as if we do not need the Word of God. That we do not need the Scripture. That a, that a particular matter is, is something that, that we can work out outside of God. We don't need a word of God on it. That, my friends, is the essence of self-reliance. That is the basic essence of self-reliance. In other words, that we can live out the Christian life, both individually and in community, without the need to hear from God through the word of God. That's self-reliance. The Proverbs say, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and what? Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Okay? So trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. We need the word of God, and we quench the spirit of God when we ignore the word of God. When we ignore the word of God, or when we supersede the word of God with any other authority source. The Word of God is authoritative in the, in the lives of the people of God, both individually and corporately. So what does self-reliance look like, practically? What does self-reliance look like? How, how do I know whether I am giving in to self-reliance here and thus stifling the work of the Spirit, obscuring, uh, standing in the way of the work of the Spirit? Well, here's one way. Here's one way. When you hear a command from the scriptures and your first thought is, yeah, but what about such and such an exception? When that's your first thought, then you are, you are in a place of self-reliance. You, you, you are listening with a heart of self-reliance. When God speaks, if you find yourself looking for the loopholes, looking for the loopholes, then you are in a place with a heart of self-reliance. You're in a place with a heart of self-reliance when, when we raise an authority source equal to, which ultimately becomes superior to, the Scriptures. When we raise up another authority source superior to the word of God. And I start with equal to because when people say, well, this is just equal to, you know, all truth is God's truth, to which I would respond, yes, and all lies are Satan's lies. So when we raise an authority source equal to the scripture, what ultimately happens is it becomes over the scriptures. And when that happens, we are quenching the spirit and giving in to a heart of self-reliance. So what kinds of ways do we raise authority sources above the Word of God? Well, a simple one is tradition, isn't it? It's tradition, right? Well, you know, we can't do what the Scriptures say here because of our tradition, be it individual tradition or family tradition or, or you know, ecclesiastical church traditions or, or even communal uh, traditions. Any kind of human tradition that supersedes the Word of God and its authority is the heart of self-reliance. Giving into academic respectability betrays the heart of self-reliance. In other words, if we find ourselves substituting Darwinian orthodoxy for the Word of God, then we are displaying the heart of self-reliance. We are quenching the Spirit's work in us. It happens in the social sciences. 
psychology and, and sociology, when those become the authority sources to talk about what's wrong with people and, and what needs to happen in order to fix them. We have substituted human authority, which, by the way, is constantly changing. It is shifting sands for the authority of the Word of God that tells exactly what's wrong with people and exactly what needs to happen in order for them to be fixed, right? They don't need to be fixed, they need to be saved. Even defining what's normal in a society, according to the social sciences, in and of itself is a problem. Normalizing sin and saying, well, yeah, that's kind of what everybody does. Therefore, it's normal. Well, of course, everybody's fallen. But that doesn't get at the real, the real problem, okay? The scriptures is where we need to be. It can reveal itself in medical research. It can reveal itself in popular opinion. A heart of self-reliance can reveal itself in, in simply our own personal desires. I want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Doesn't, I don't, you know... When it comes to the scripture and my happiness, my happiness always trumps the scripture, right? Self-esteem, my comfort, my prosperity, many ways personal desires become an authority source higher than the scripture. And in doing that, we're quenching the spirit of God and displaying the heart of self-reliance. Okay, so that's the first self. You got it? That's the first self. Second. Second is self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. You know what? The battery in the clock in the pulpit is dead. That's pretty good. You know what it means when a preacher takes off his watch? Puts it in the pulpit? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Okay, we're on number two, self. Number two, self-exaltation. Okay, so self-reliance. Self-reliance you know, creates a barrier to the work of the, of the spirit, to being filled by the Spirit, to being conformed into the image of Christ through the word of Christ. But secondly is self-exaltation, and for that I'm going to turn you over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. And verse 3. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 3 here is the place where Paul begins to draw out the, the implications and applications of the transformed life. Look at verses 1 and 2, right? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies of God? The theology of chapters 1 through 11, that mercies of God. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the great theology, the mercies of God in chapters 1 through 11, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's always theology followed by duty. And, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does a transformed mind look like? He's saying, be transformed in your mind. What does it look like? Well, beginning in verse 3 and following, Paul will begin to unpack in the rest of this letter what the transformed mind looks like. And in particular, he, he, he's calling the Romans here to, to, to renew their minds and, and, and to think, first off, soberly about themselves, sensibly and soberly about themselves. 
and their place in the local fellowship. Look at it again, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Okay? And, and here in chapter 12 through 16, he's talking about life together. Life together in the community. So in the community of the believers... Right? The transformed mind is a mind that doesn't think more highly of itself than it ought to think. It thinks soberly about itself. And in fact, all of the, the following instructions that he's going to give about the use of the spiritual gifts, about our subjection to government, about how to interact with each other over matters, the gray matters of conscience, and, and all the rest of that stuff is going to be, listen, don't be big-headed about this. Don't be big-headed about this. Don't, don't puff yourself up. Don't exalt yourself in these matters, but to think soberly about yourself. There is a, there is a reality here that you and I, as, as children of God, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as his spirit brothers, as it were, we are involved in his body, the church, in a position of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Now, it was a problem in the first century in Rome. It's a problem in our culture today. Big egos. Big egos are a problem, are they not? In fact, we live in a culture that, that revels in big egos, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to look much further than the sports world or the entertainment world, to see people who celebrate and are celebrated who, you know, can say nothing more than I am the greatest. We've taken it to an art form. It's a perversity that we have taken to an art form. And in contrast, it is in opposition to this, this pervasive, unregenerate thinking, Paul commands the Christians not to fall prey to this sin. Verse 3, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Instead, think biblically, develop a, a sensible view for yourself. And notice again, this is to the whole church, right? So don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think to so have sound, as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in Christ and so forth. So he's talking about in the unity of the body here. Beloved, nobody is immune. Nobody is immune to this self-deception. Nobody. This self Exaltation doesn't require a lot of practice. Uh, we don't even have to train our children in how to be proficient at it. They are very good at it. They are very, very good at it. And so are you, and so am I. So how do we battle it? How do we battle the self-exaltation which hinders the work of the Spirit of God to conforming us to the image of Christ? In other words, that is the opposite of, of to be being filled by the Spirit. How do we battle it? And the answer is here for us in verse 3. And it's simply this, to refuse to engage in, in self-comparisons. To refuse to engage in self-comparisons, but instead to, to soberly reflect upon one reality. And it's this, that all Christians, both great and small, are saved in the same way, by grace through faith, right? As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest any man self Exalt, right? Any man boast. So Paul says here, look again, verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't exalt yourself, but think so to have sound judgment. All right, what is the sound judgment? As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And what does he mean by that? This, this statement, as God has allotted, 
right? So, so it's a gift of God. God has allotted it. A measure of faith. This is, this is what grammarians call a, a genitive of apposition. And, and so what does all that mean? What means this? So, so when Paul says, have sound judgment, has God as a Lord allotted to each a measure, a standard, which is faith. Faith is the measure. Faith is the standard. Faith, the reality that it is by grace through faith alone, is what provides the, the, the balance, the, 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 the counteraction to the self-exaltation, to thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. In other words, that God has allotted faith to each of us. And if God had not given the gift of faith to you, you would not know Christ. You would not know him. It is the gift. You are completely dependent on the gift of faith that has come to you from God that, that establishes you as a child of God. And when we think on that reality, we begin to think rightly. We begin to think soberly. We begin to, to think with sound judgment. And we are able to resist the self-exaltation. We could say it this way. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. The ground is level. No one gets a step up. No one gets a step up. To think soberly, to think soberly, which is the, which is the, the counteraction to, to self-exaltation, what Paul is saying here is that we need to recognize that before God there is no hierarchy. There is no pecking order. He says it over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not obliterating human distinctions. What he is obliterating is the, is the false idea that any human distinction would somehow place one in a better position before God. I say it this way. In the, in, in the act of salvation, the only thing you contribute is the sin necessary to make it happen. You bring sin to the party, God brings everything else. Four, verses four and five, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Sober thinking begins with the understanding that we are saved by grace through faith alone, that we're equal in that way, and then it causes us to, to properly appraise our role and relationship within the local church, within the local assembly. And Paul uses here the construction of just as, so also, right? For just as, verse 4 Verse 5, so we, which is a, kind of, is a so also approach. And, and he uses the illustration here of a human body to clarify his point regarding the body of Christ. It's a simple illustration of unity and diversity within the human body. And Paul likes that illustration, by the way, right? He picks it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to speak to a church, a local church, that is completely fractured by self-exaltation. By people who are, who are, you know, jockeying to be first among others. And Paul brings this analogy to bear. I mean, when you think about the human body, it, it is fearfully and wonderfully made, isn't it? I mean, it is an engineering marvel when you think about it. I mean, just think about reaching out to, to pick up something. All of the the motions involved and the, and the feedback loops and all of this sort of stuff to perform this very intricate function of reaching out and picking up a simple object like a glass or a pencil or whatever it might be. All the unity that has to happen within the diversity of fingers, arms, shoulders, brain, nerves, muscles, on and on it goes, right? It's pretty incredible. And that's at the kind of the macro level. You get down to the micro level and, and, the, and the functionality within the cell structure itself would, would put to shame the, the most advanced automated car manufacturing operation in the world. 
when you see what goes on at the cellular level. This is the way God has made us. There's a unity and diversity that is on display in the human body. And that's the, that's the point of Paul's illustration here in verses 4 and 5. It's the whole point of it. He says, Christians, believers, you and I, we are just like the human body. We differ in form and function, but we're all necessary for the, for the smooth operation, and we are under equal obligation to serve one another. To serve one another. Why? Because we're part of a single whole. The body of Christ that is visibly identifiable in a local fellowship. In a local fellowship. When I think and act in a a role of self-exaltation, when I fall to that, when I I give in to that kind of simple thinking, when I I act out proudly or, or think proudly or speak proudly, what I am doing is contradicting the work of the Spirit within me. The work of the Spirit here in the, in the local fellowship. And I, have been, I am obstructing his work of filling me, of filling me, of conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we can say this, I think, with, with great certainty, that a church or a home, right? Go, go over to Ephesians 5, just... You understand what I'm saying here? That a church or a home, marriage, family, right? Parents and children, so forth. A church or a home that is, that is experiencing disunity is a church where Christians are not being filled by the Spirit. Because when we are being filled by the Spirit, in the assembly, look at verses 19 to 21, it's going to show up in how we interact. And it's going to show up, beginning in verse 22 and following, in how our marriages are carried out. And it's going to show up, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 1, in terms of how our our family structure is working out. If these things are in disunity, then we are not being filled by the Spirit. We are not being filled by the Spirit. Self-reliance, self-exaltation, third. Third. Third obstacle. Self-will. Self-will. The third way we obstruct the Spirit's work in us is when we resist His influence. We resist His influence. And we resist it by living on the same moral plane as those who do not know Christ and are still trapped in darkness. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Well, in the context here, it's that we, have, that we live like the old man. The darkness, right? Paul says, verse 22, in reference to your further manner of life, which was dead in sin, you lay it aside, you put it off, and you put on the new man in Christ, right? So you, you stop living the way you used to be, and you start living the way you are theologically. And then he spells it all out here, where he talks about you know, truth speaking, and dealing with anger, and, and theft, and just rotten speech as a whole, and and the bitterness and clamor and wrath that occur among people, believers, and so forth. So he's saying is when we live like that, we are grieving the Spirit of God. We are grieving the Spirit of God. And beloved, this is, this, this is a very, very important truth. Very, very important truth. This, this statement about not living like this, who you once were, but living like this, who you now, now are. Because this is the power of Christian ethics. This is, what, this is what moves Christian morality. This is, what, this is what makes Christianity more than a behavioral code. There are plenty of, of behavioral codes, of statements of ethics that can be pretty noble, but they're powerless. They're impotent. 
They cannot change anything because the power to change has to come from the inside out. The work of the Spirit of God as he applies the truth or the reality. You're no longer with Adam. You're now with Christ. Start living that way. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We talked about this, I think it was last week, right? It's the Holy Spirit who seals us, who secures us, who authenticates us as the Father's adopted sons. Chapter 1, verse 13. And he will continue to do that until the last day. In other words, until Christ comes to take us to be with him. He is the seal of our redemption. And he, and he provides us with the assurance of our security in Christ. Because God has put his seal on you in the form of his spirit. He will never let you go. He will never let you go. That's powerful. When you, when you begin to meditate on that reality, that no matter how bad I screw up, no matter how bad my Monday morning is, God will never let me go. It draws us back. It, it, it draws us back to the light. And we, and, we, and we begin again to put off that old man and to put on the new man in Christ. But, beloved, we can, give, we can grieve the Spirit. We can sadden Him. We can, we can disappoint Him. We can, we can create relational space between Him and us. And we do it. We do it when we live like the old man. When we live like the old man. Listen, you can't hurt somebody or let me put it the other way. Somebody can't hurt you unless you care about them. If you, don't, if you don't care about somebody, they can't hurt you. The only way that, that somebody can hurt you in a relationship is if you care about it. So when Paul says here, don't grieve the spirit, don't sadden the spirit, don't disappoint the spirit, don't hurt the spirit in this relationship, it's because the spirit loves you. He loves you completely, totally, fully. So when we live like this, in self-will, rather than like who we really are, it grieves him. It grieves him. We grieve him with our words. We grieve him with our actions. We grieve him with our deeds. We grieve him when we refuse his promptings to repent. But beloved, he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you back. And all you have to do, if you're a, if you're a child of God this morning, if, if you are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, all you have to do, if there's space in the relationship right now, all you have to do is like the prodigal son, Turn towards the father's house and he will hike up his garment as it will and he will run out to embrace you. The way back, the way back is wide open if we'll take it. Can the spirit leak out? Answer, no. No, be firm about that. Be firm in your thinking. Okay? Can the spirit leak out? No. No. However, can you hinder his work? Can you obstruct his work in you day by day? Yes, you can. And yes, we do. Yes, we do. He is committed. Christ is committed to conforming us to his likeness, to making us like him, for in him lies the fullness of deity and bodily form, the, the triune God. And he does it by his spirit who makes the scriptures come alive to you and me. But when we give in to self-reliance, when we give in to self-exaltation, 
When we, when we grieve the spirit by, by living like the old man in rebellion, we hinder the work. If you find yourself there today, you're sitting out here this morning and you're, you're, you're finding yourself where the, the, your relationship with Christ is not optimal. There's a, there's a certain coldness to it. There's a, not, not that you disbelieve, not that you disbelieve, but there's just not, there's not a warmth in your heart towards the things of God. If you find yourself there now or tomorrow morning or this afternoon or tonight or 10 minutes after you walk out the door, then there are, there are, there's a self-diagnostic that you need to do. There's some, some questions to ask yourself. And, and sometimes we, we get to the place where there's, the, the relationship has grown distant enough that we don't even feel like asking the question. I mean, the time to ask the question is as soon as you realize the distance. But sometimes we've neglected and we've allowed the distance to grow to a place where, honestly, in this moment we say, you know what, I'm so apathetic that I don't even care that I don't care. Not good. That's when you need a friend. You need a real friend who, who will help you in the, in the self-diagnostic. Somebody, somebody who loves you enough, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend who will come along to you and with you and help you look into your own heart through the, through the word of God to let it richly dwell within you and ask yourself these three questions. I'm going to close and leave you with these three questions. You ready? Here they are. The first one is simply this. Where am I being self-reliant rather than depending upon the scriptures to define what is true? Where? Where have I become self-reliant in, in my life? What, have I, what authority source am I elevating? My feelings? My parents? My teachers? My friend? What is it? What is it? Second. Second question to ask is, is how am I exalting myself and seeking my glory rather than the Father's glory in this particular situation? Lord, help me to see. I know I have a propensity for self-exaltation. It's not, not if, you know, like, you know, maybe this will catch me, maybe it won't. It does catch me. So how am I exalting myself here? Because you see, when, when I want my own glory, and I don't get it, my world comes crashing down. My world comes crashing down. Idols demand sacrifices. And when my glory has become my idol, it demands consistent sacrifice, including everyone around me that they sacrifice to my idol and that's self-exaltation. So how is it being manifested? Third. Third question. In what way am I grieving the Holy Spirit? In what way am I grieving the Holy Spirit here by my thinking? By my speaking or by my living? In such a way that it's as if I don't know Christ. As if his finished work is not done? As if I'm not sealed by his spirit? And then he's, he's going to do his good work in me and I'm assured of his love forever? And I'm going to be with him eternally? In, in what way am I acting as if that's not true? Because in that way I'm grieving him. 
I'm standing in the way. Standing in the way of the Spirit's work to conform me to Christ. Beloved, Jesus never had in his flesh access to any spiritual resource that you also do not have access to. He did the Father's will by a full and complete reliance upon the Father's word mediated to him in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is both our high priest and our model of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, challenging words this morning. Challenging to us, Father, because it hits us right where we are. It, it, it identifies the deep-seated problems that cause us to be discontented or, or stale or even impotent in our spiritual life. Father, our hearts are so prone to wander in these things. And so we pray, oh Lord, do your good work in us. How grateful we are that you will not let us go, that, that you sent us your spirit as the seal of, of our redemption, that you will accomplish what you've begun in us. And, and we can't fall out. But we can sure make a hash of it in the here and the now. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as the word has been preached and read that your Holy Spirit would apply it just exactly where it needs to be in each and every one of our hearts. We give ourselves to you, Father, in this moment, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, beloved. You have been most attentive, praying that the Spirit of God does his work in you today and this week. Go in peace.